Our reading this morning is uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 6 through 16. <clears throat> Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kyle. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Zoomers. That's for people on the live stream. It's not people flying around or something. Uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, um, we sang about how you are incomparable, uncomparable, that you are all of these negative words. You are beyond understanding, beyond description, beyond all of these things. And, and Lord, that's because human language, when it approaches the divine, when we get closer and closer to who you are, we run out of words to describe you. And so all can we can do at a certain point is say what you're not. You're not like anything you've created. You are glorious beyond all that. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, for showing us what you have about yourself. And Lord, thank you that we have a future in eternity to understand you more and more, more deeply, more of who you are, uh, more of your glory. What a glorious thing to think of. Thank you for that great promise. Uh, Lord, meanwhile, here on earth, we um, have struggles and trials and difficulties and uh, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines. And Lord, we know that these things are temporary and fleeting. They will be gone uh, someday. But in the meantime, Lord, we, we wrestle with them. And so, Lord, I want to pray for the conflict in the Middle East, the, um, the conflict in Israel uh, between uh, Israel and Hamas with the uh, Israeli citizens as victims, with the Palestinians as victims, and Hamas as the perpetrator of all this evil. Um, Lord, we pray against them. Lord, we pray that you would break the power of that enemy, that uh, Hamas's evil, their destruction, their disregard for human life would be put to an end. And Lord, we pray for Israel as they um, prosecute this war, as they attempt to root out Hamas in uh, Gaza. Uh, Lord, there'll be many innocent victims, many Palestinians who are simply in the way. And so we pray for wisdom and restraint and care on their part. Um, but Lord, we do ask for an end to that enemy. And uh, Lord, we know that uh, the struggle in Israel and the Middle East is really pretty much beyond resolving for us. We don't know what to do on a human level, but 
Lord, your wisdom surpasses all of that. And so we pray that you would bring things to an appropriate and a fitting place. And Lord, we anticipate the day when Jesus returns, when he comes back and he rules the earth. And this question will be decided clearly and, and unambiguously. Until then, Lord, I pray for our leaders. I pray for the Congress, for our president, for our military leaders uh, as we decide how and um, what is an appropriate response uh, to the, the difficulty there. Um, Lord, would you give them insight and care and wisdom. And uh, Father, I want to not forget in the midst of this, uh, the victims in Ukraine as Russia has invaded there and the war continues on. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would bring that to a, a resolution as well. Um, Father, that uh, the war would end. We, we long for war to be done. We long for the day when war is an, a bad memory. Uh, but until then, Lord, we pray for, uh, for Ukraine as well. Would you bring them peace? Lord, we praise you and we thank you for the peace that we have found in Christ. Even in the midst of this tumultuous world, even in the middle of, of trouble and difficulty, Lord, you've brought us peace. And so, Lord, would you speak through your word to us this morning so that we might experience that peace more, more fully, more resoundly. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So speaking of war, um, World War I, it took around 40 million lives by the time it ended in 1918. 40 million people. It was pretty disastrous. Right after that came the Spanish flu, which killed about another 50 million people. So the beginning of the 20th century started with a lot of death and destruction. And what you saw as a response to that especially in the West and in Europe and in America, was this rise in what's called spiritualism. And spiritualism is the idea that you could have someone communicate with the dead. Uh, a medium through a seance would be able to communicate with the dead and bring messages back and forth between the two. This really became very, very popular in the 1920s. After all this death and destruction, so many people missed so many loved ones because of war and disease um, that it really surged. And so in uh, 1924, here in America, the magazine Scientific American uh, established a six-man panel to investigate spiritualists and award $2,500 to any medium who could prove beyond a doubt that they had these psychic abilities, that they were able to communicate with the dead. Um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of uh, Sherlock Holmes, was a big believer in spiritualists. He, he just really bought the whole thing. He thought that was absolutely correct. And so he suggested to Scientific American that they investigate a woman in Boston who he believed was a real, uh, an actual spiritist. Her name was Mira Crandon. And she was having these seances at her house. So that was the decision as they were gonna go do this. Well, the famous escape artist, Harry Houdini, uh, he was the one that suggested this panel because Scientific American came to him and said, would you investigate spiritualists? And he said, you should get a panel of scientists together to do it. When he heard that they were about to award Crandon this $2,500 reward, he canceled his shows and headed to Boston. He wanted to investigate this himself. So he sat in on a seance at her house. And he sat through the whole thing. And about a month or two later, he wrote a pamphlet that explained everything she did. This is how she pulled off all of these, these things. And so they decided not to give her the uh, reward from Scientific American. Um, but that didn't kill her career. There were true believers who said, Houdini just is wrong. He doesn't understand what's going on. And so she continued on popular and had many visitors and, and conducted many seances. 
Um, her psychic guide, her spirit guide that she called on was her brother, Walter. And at one time in 1926, uh, her spirit guide announced, Houdini will be gone by Halloween. And that, that was the announcement. Now, Harry Houdini was a famous escape artist. He could get out of all sorts of things, but one of the things that he also did kind of as a side was uh, to prove his strength, he would let people punch him in the gut. And if they punched him in the gut and he was okay, that was supposed to show them something. Well, in 1926, um, a student from Montreal showed up and punched him before he was ready. He hadn't tightened up the muscles. And the punch actually ruptured Houdini's appendix. And he, got it, he went into uh, septic uh, uh, infection and he died October 31st, 1926, from septic poisoning. So in his life, he attempted to disprove spiritus. Accidentally in his death, he seemed to validate this, this uh, one spiritualist. Uh, it's kind of ironic. But I, I looked through the, our, the pamphlet that he published about her, and he, he did document, he explained everything that she did in the seance. Uh, the voices, the things floating, all that stuff. He, he explained it away. But this idea of this spiritualist, I think this is kind of why when you think of a haunted house, it looks like a house from that era, from the 1920s, run down, decrepit, that kind of stuff, is we have this creepy association with that, that time period. And so today, it kind of feeds into modern culture when we think about something as spiritual. We tend to think of it as kind of creepy and eerie and otherworldly and you know that kind of stuff. And we still have palm readers and, and tarot card readers and and uh, we still publish the horoscope in their newspaper, for heaven's sake. And this is that kind of idea of spiritualism. Well, what we're going to see today in 1 Corinthians is Paul is going to talk about the spirit. And he's going to talk about spiritual things. And when Paul says spiritual, that's exactly what he doesn't mean. It's not the woo-woo kind of scary, eerie things that I can't really explain. So people who say that, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. They, they, they kind of have this soft, fuzzy idea of what is true. It's something more than I can quite see, but they can't quite nail it down. Paul is, is saying the exact opposite of that. For him, spiritual it means something very concrete, very real, and very important. And so this morning, when we take a look at this section, we're going to see what he means by spiritual. Um, he's going to talk about spiritual wisdom. He's going to explain why people miss it. He's going to explain how we get it. And then we're going to look at what is gained by this spiritual wisdom. That's where he's going to go with this. Now, why is it spiritual wisdom? Why is it at this point in 1 Corinthians? If you remember, it's been a couple of weeks because I was gone last week. And, but it's been a couple of weeks. Um, Paul came down pretty hard on wisdom a couple of weeks ago. He was really kind of dismissing it and, and talking about how useless it is. He said some things like in uh, verse uh, chapter 2, Oh, wait, where'd it go? Um, there it is. In chapter 2, the first part of it, 1 through 5, he said, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the witness of God with lofty speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith not, might not rest in the wisdom of man, but the power of God. So he seems to be contrasting wisdom with the gospel. And then at the beginning of the, the book, in chapter 1, he said, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. He's talking about this idea that wisdom tries to elevate it. And for the Greeks, what wisdom was, was very fancy speech and eloquent words and, and lofty ideas and those kind of things. It didn't really have to be concrete, just as long as it sounded good. 
So Paul came down pretty hard on wisdom at that point, but now he's going to say something, he's going to kind of shift directions and say, it's not like all wisdom is horrible. What he was talking about was earthly human wisdom, but there is another kind of wisdom. There's something even better than that. And so he starts, he says, yet among the, the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. So he says, we do impart wisdom. We do talk wisdom. So what was the context? Well, the, the section right before that, he said, I determined to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. And then he says, but we do impart wisdom. So this is that idea of the spiritual wisdom is something more than just the rhetoric of the Greeks, something more than just the elaborate speech they have. This is something concrete. This is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what this, this wisdom of, um, that he's going to impart to them is. He says, we did not come in, uh, um, I'm sorry, he says, um, although it's not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age, it's, it's not the wisdom of the earth, it's not the wisdom of the age, it's not the wisdom of the ruler of the age. The, the rulers of the age, some people take that to be like spiritual powers and that kind of thing. I, I don't think that's what he means in this case because he says if they had the spiritual wisdom we were talking about, they wouldn't have crucified Christ. And that was earthly, concrete, human rulers. That was Greeks and that was Jews who crucified Christ. So I think he's talking about those rulers of the age, not their kind of wisdom. That it's not what they, what they were relying on. It's not what they're thinking it is. That is bound to pass away. The, the true spiritual wisdom, this idea of Jesus Christ and him crucified will win the day. So they're destined to, to pass away, but not us, not the wisdom we talk. Verse seven, he says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So this is often given rise to um, the idea that you've got to come to me and I will impart to you this secret and hidden wisdom. It's something that only a few are let into and it's very mysterious and ooh, kind of begins to branch into the, the spiritualist stuff. The word for hidden there is the word mysterion, mystery, mystery. But when Paul especially talks about a mystery it's not something that nobody knows about. It's something that was not revealed very clearly before, but since Jesus came, and it's now really well known. So for Paul, a mystery is something that is, he is uncovered. He is now announcing this mystery. It's not hidden secret knowledge that nobody else gets. And where do we get that? Well, he talks about in Ephesians 3, he says, this is the mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, member of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery. In the Old Testament, there were hints, there were, there were times where it talked about the Gentiles being brought in, but the mystery now has been unveiled, it has been opened up. The Gentiles are going to come in in ways you just couldn't imagine. And that's who he's talking to, he's talking to the church at Corinth. There was a synagogue there and there were some Jews, but it was largely a Gentile congregation. Romans 11, he says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. I want you to know this mystery. A partial hardening has come on upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So this mystery that he's talking about is the, the welcoming in of the Gentiles. This is what he's preaching. Jews and Gentiles come together. There, there's no longer this division anymore. This is the wisdom, the spiritual wisdom that he's going to impart to them. It's, it's not the secret hidden words that only so, certain people know. It is for everyone. So this is the secret that he's going to proclaim. The rulers of the age didn't understand it or they wouldn't have crucified Christ. They would have welcomed him. But the Jews didn't understand it. 
Even though they had the scriptures, they had the oracles of God revealed to them, they didn't understand it. They looked at Jesus and said, he's not doing what we think he should be doing. We have decided that the Messiah is going to come in as a political ruler. He's going to come in and he's going to kick out these Romans. He's going to establish the kingdom. He's going to do these things. And this Jesus is not doing it. And so they rejected him. And they looked at the, the Romans and they said, look, these people are oppressors. They're invaders. They, they're here to occupy the Jewish nation. How could they be welcomed in? How could we welcome these people in? Look what they're doing to us. What do you mean he's going to bring us together? So they rejected that. The Gentiles didn't get it either. To them, Judaism was this weird religion with a bunch of rules they didn't understand. And, and one God? How can there only be one God? So their mandate for the occupying forces was to maintain the peace and keep the tax dollars flowing. And so this Jesus shows up and he's got the Jews all riled up and some are for him and some of her against him and he's a, he's a king of the Jews and we got to deal with this. And so had they understood what was really going on, they would have taken a very different approach. But they were more interested in the earthly concrete. We got to keep the, the peace of Rome going. But to us, God has revealed this mystery. He says, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared beforehand for those who love him. This is the mystery. This is the spiritual wisdom that he's going to impart. And when you get that, it begins to answer those other questions. It begins to answer those other things. So that, that's a quote from Isaiah 64. And Isaiah 64 began with, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And that's exactly what he did in the person of Jesus Christ. He rented the heavens. He, he was born as a man, born to a woman, born under the law. He came to us. He came down from heaven to us. And so that's, that's the fuller context of that idea. But the, the rulers of the world couldn't understand these things. Why? Because God has revealed them to us through the Spirit is how he ends that section. They don't have the Spirit. We do. God has not revealed to them through the Spirit these truths. He has revealed them to us. So this is why they missed it. it it's not like they were somehow deficient. They were somehow missing some um, organic part of their being that they couldn't possibly process it. it. It simply hadn't been revealed to them. God had not opened their eyes to see this. Although with the Jews, you think, if they had the scriptures, how could they have missed it? And, and Paul kind of answers that. There's more to it than just having the words written down. You have to have the spirit to understand them. We'll see that in a little bit. So that's, that's the problem. This is why they missed it. Um, because they didn't have the spirit. So that raises the question then, how do we get it? Are we just that much smarter? We're just that much better off. We have got it all nailed down. We are the people who have got it together. That must be it. Well, that's not where Paul goes with it. In, in verse 10, he says, these things God has revealed to us through the spirit. God has revealed these things to us through the Spirit. We didn't climb up and figure it out. We didn't go, oh, we're so much better. We're morally perfect and everybody else is horrible. It was God revealed through the Spirit. That's how we got this. So uh, verse 10 continues on. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit that is in that person? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So this is, this is where he's going to go with this. How did we get this? How do we understand these things? Because the Spirit. 
Now, when he says the spirit searches everything, it's not the idea that the spirit somehow didn't know and had to go figure it out. I better go search this out and research it. What he's using those words to depict is this idea that the Holy Spirit knows everything about God. He's plumbed the depths. He knows everything about God. He knows the Father. He knows the Son. He knows himself intimately, thoroughly, deeply. That's that idea of searching it out. So since he has all of this knowledge, he can then impart it to us in the right and the appropriate way. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of the person that's in them? This is that immaterial portion of us, the, the part that, that does the, the rational thought and those kind of things. Our spirit knows us. If we didn't have our spirit, we wouldn't really know what we were thinking necessarily. But the spirit knows that. And so God, the spirit, understands, he comprehends everything about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and he reveals that to us. So verse 12, he says, now we, were his, <laughs> now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit is, who is from God. We've received the spirit not of this world. Um, there is an approach, there is an attitude, there is a direction of this world, and that's what we had, but we hadn't received that. As the church, we have received the spirit of God. That's who we've gotten. And so that's how we understand these things is because the spirit does that. Remember last week or a week or two ago, we did uh, baptism, we talked about baptism. And one of, the, one of the approaches to baptism was that baptism imparts the Holy Spirit. When you're baptized, you receive the Spirit. And I said at the time, that doesn't really fit. There's cases where the Spirit comes before and becomes after. Um, that's not how we do it. But the baptism then pictures this wonderful truth that we have received the Spirit. He pictures the, the great blessings that we have, or it pictures the great blessings we have received in the New Covenant. And one of those is the sealing and the, and the uh, enclosure of the Holy Spirit. That's pictured in baptism. That's what he's talking about here. We have received not the spirit of the world. We have received the spirit of God. And we didn't receive him by baptism, but baptism pictures that concrete, in a concrete way, the interior reality of what the Holy Spirit has done. Why have we gotten that? That we might understand the things freely given us by God. There are things God wants us to understand. There are things that he wants us to get. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. There's a technical term called the economy of the Trinity. And when we think economy, you always think money. And there's no money in the Trinity. That's not how that works. When we talk about the economic Trinity, what we're talking about is the function of each person in the Trinity. What is their primary role within the Trinity? So the Father has ordained. He's the one who planned. He is the one who announced. The Son enacts. He comes to, he comes to Earth. He dies in our place. He is risen again. He lived the life we didn't. He is the one who brings salvation to us possibly. And the Holy Spirit then, his economic role in the Trinity is to bring us salvation, to seal us, to, to make salvation real to us. He is the one who reveals. The Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the Bible. So these things come to us that they were given to us freely by God through the Spirit, including the Bible as well as, as the sealing of salvation and all those things, he gives us the Bible. So that made me think of uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. There are things about God that he has not revealed to us. We sang this morning, uh, indescribable. God is in, indescribable. Well, he's, he's describable in part, the part that he's revealed. There's a secret things that are beyond what he's described to us, and we won't know them, not until we get to see him face to face. The secret things belong to the Lord. 
But the things that have been revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. That's the blessing. That's the promise. That's what the Holy Spirit does, is he has brought to us the things that God wants to reveal to us. That's his role. That's his, his role in the economic trinity. So those, those are the things that we have. We have been given them. Now, remember the context of this, the beginning of 1 Corinthians was there was division in the church. I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and, and all of that. They were beginning to divide up. What Paul's arguing here, this is continuing his argument, is, no, you guys, there is unity. There, there's, a, there's a source of unity that you shouldn't be divided. It doesn't matter who baptized you, who brought you the gospel. That's not what's important. It's that you are in Christ. And so when he writes to the Ephesians, he, he tells them to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, that's what he's focusing on. That's what the spirit does for us, is he brings us together. So we look around the church and we say, well, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos. And it's like, well, where did Paul get it? Where did Apollos get it? They got it because the Holy Spirit revealed to them. Where did you get it? Well, I got it from Paul, yeah. But the Holy Spirit made it possible for you to do that. So the Spirit is a symbol. It's, he, he is the possibility. He's the hope of unity within the church. So that's why we have to do that. That's why we have to maintain those things. In verse 13, he says, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. These things we impart not by words taught by human wisdom. There is a limit to which human wisdom is going to take us. There's a limit to which we're going to be able to explain things in, in non-spiritual, non-Christian terms. It's only going to go so far. So Paul is saying, what I'm bringing to you, I determined to know nothing but Christ crucified. What I'm bringing to you, I'm bringing you to you in words not taught by human wisdom. You're not going to get there if you just sit and think about it. Instead, these are things that are taught by the Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit to bring these words to you. The next phrase is really difficult to, to uh, translate. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Sounds clunky, doesn't it? You should read it in Greek. In Greek, it's literally, in words taught spirit, spiritual, spiritual interpreting. Uh, thank you. <laughs> what does that mean? Um, I think if you kind of put that back in a little bit of correct order, you get, in spirit taught words, Spiritual interpreting spiritual, something along those lines. So the King James, the good old King James says, which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Kind of gets at it, but it still doesn't help, does it? It's, it's still a little foggy. The New International Version says, in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. Or like we just read in the ESV, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So you get the, the flavor of what's going on through some of those translations. It's, it's, it's a little difficult to get at, but the idea remains pretty much the same. There is a real spiritual wisdom, and you have to be in the Spirit. You have to be filled with the Spirit, sealed in the Spirit, to get those things, for those to come to you and to make sense. So Paul is going to come, and he's going to explain these things to us. But if you're not spiritual, you're not going to get it. It's, it's not going to make sense. He could say those words, and they will go right over your head because you haven't been sealed with the Spirit. The Spirit's not there interpreting them for you. So that's why I wanted to bring that up at the beginning. When I say spiritual, I don't mean woo-woo, um, communicating with dead people and having you know weird feelings and auras and ghosts and, and Bigfoot and E.T. or something. This is something concrete. Spiritual in this sense means controlled by, led by, filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And that's what's necessary. That's why Paul says, I'm not going to rely on the, the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world discounts that. 
I'm going to rely on these words that are true, these words which are not dependent on human beings. And so that's how we get it, is we get it because the Holy Spirit has chosen to reveal it to us, not because we're clever enough, not because we sat and, and thought long enough about it. So then the last section, he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the natural person, this person who is in the natural state of humanity, there's nothing abnormal about them. So you don't look at somebody who's not a believer and go, there's, they're a freak. They're not. They're the natural. They're the, the natural state of things. Learned a great word in the Air Force, quiescent. Isn't that a cool word? Quiescent means uh, settled. It's not being disturbed. This, that's the natural state of humanity since the fall is we're not going to understand these things. The, the, it requires that the Spirit reveal them to us, for they are folly to him. So the natural person is looking at these things and going, that makes absolutely no sense. You're speaking gibberish. They're folly. They're not wisdom. They're the opposite of wisdom. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, understood by the power of the Spirit working in somebody's heart, explaining these things to them, opening their eyes so that they can see. That's the natural person. That's natural wisdom. That's earthly wisdom. And it can only go so far. Because what happens is it's cut off part of the equation. In some way, it has distorted a certain part of the human condition. Greeks rejected Jesus because, well, the material world is yucky and we don't want that. What do you mean God became man? That makes no sense. And then rose from the dead? You don't want to rise from the dead. You want to be dead so you're free from your icky body. So they rejected him because they, they took Jesus out of the equation. They didn't put him in and say, how does Jesus make the world better? They just said, that, that doesn't make any sense. Jews rejected Jesus because he didn't do the things they thought he should. They, they, he's, he's, not doing, he's not behaving the way he ought to. Muslims reject Jesus because Allah is one. It says specifically in the Quran, don't believe in the Trinity. Allah is one, that's it. So that doesn't make any sense that Jesus is God. And, and one of his prophets, one of Allah's prophets suffered and died? That can't be. And so they claim that Judas suffered in Jesus' place, that, that the prophet Jesus was never suffered. They put Jesus out of the equation and established their approach first. Modern materialists today, they would reject Jesus because there's no God. I mean, that doesn't make any kind of sense. And, and dead people don't come back from the dead. So forget it. You're wrong. That, that's kind of the approaches to this. But what do we do? What do, how do we understand this stuff? What's the other half of this equation? Verse 15, the spiritual person says, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. So this, the natural person does not accept these things. The spiritual person does judge these things. We look at these things and go, now, wait a minute. Does it make sense that this material world is icky? That we want to escape this, that we want to get away from this? God created a whole bunch of universe. There's a lot of space out here. There's a lot of material. There's a lot of time. He didn't do that on accident. He had a point in that. So we're going to judge these kind, of, these kind of approaches, and we're going to say, this is how this works. But if somebody judges us, we go, well, you're off on the wrong foot to begin with. You've rejected the possibility of a spirit at all in, in any of this. Since you've removed Jesus from the equation, your judgment doesn't stand. So that's what I think he means when he says that we are judged by no one. Then verse 16, for who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So we, we get this because we have Christ. 
we have been given the Spirit. So if we put Jesus back into the equation, if we analyze this world through this belief, first and foremost, that Jesus is who he says he is, we get some very different results. And they're really glorious, and they're much better. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. He doesn't hate the world. The world's not icky. The world's not something that's temporary and has got to be done away with. God loved this world. He sent his only begotten son into this world to redeem this world. That's better news than it's all going to burn up one day. The idea of vengeance or karma, if I do enough good, thing, good things will come my way, that just crumbles. Because with Jesus coming, instead of vengeance or getting what's good for you or what you put in and getting it back, you get grace. You get God's favor pouring out abundantly on you. Not because you're good enough, not because you've done enough, but because he decided that he's going to love you. It, it puts grace in a, in a different light. It puts karma as not good news. This is really scary. The divisions that we have between men and women, between ethnicities, between religions, between regions, they don't disappear, but that wall of separation can fall. The, the, the need to have these distinctions can begin to crumble because we have Jesus coming in and redeeming all of us together. So there's not one ethnicity that's superior to another. There's not one gender that's superior to another. There's not one region of the world that's superior to another region. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so we can have that unity that he's reaching for here. We can, we can have that hope in that. Life actually has a meaning and a goal and a direction and a purpose. It's not random occurrence of molecules that kind of bump into each other. There's a, there's a reason that you're alive. There's a reason that you're doing what you're doing. There's a reason behind it. You may not understand it at the moment. That may be part of what is hidden that the Holy Spirit hasn't revealed to you. But in the midst of that, you have this hope that we're heading someplace. And, and God's in charge. I'm not just tumbling through space out of control. Jesus has come. There, that means something. That roots reality into something. There, there is hope beyond a giant meter taking us all out. It's going to end someday and we'll just be gone. There's, there's a hope that points beyond that. doesn't make it easier in the middle of it, but it does give us an end goal saying, I can endure this suffering because I see where I'm going. And, and it's not oblivion. It's, it's not loss. It's not nothingness. Humility becomes a reality. As a matter of fact, for the Christian, humility becomes a necessity. And when I say humility, what I mean is to say, God is the one who made me. God is the one who has ordained where I am. He's the one I'm going to agree with as to who I am. Not what the world thinks, not what I think. I'm going to go with what God thinks because he's ultimately right, and therefore I can be humble. And humility doesn't necessarily mean milk toast, roll over, get stepped on. Sometimes actual humility is to stand up and be bold. Moses was called the, the most humble man on earth at his time, and boy, was he fiery. He, he could really go after him, and that was humility. Jesus was humbled himself. He humbled himself much further than Moses did. He was God, and he humbled himself and became born in a manger, not even a, not even a palace. He humbled himself that far, and boy, could Jesus light into the Pharisees. You whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, and that's humility because what you're saying is I'm agreeing with who God is. And I don't have to prove myself to somebody else. I don't have to say, well, they don't like me. We're judged by no one. That's not what's important. Humility becomes a reality. Our identity 
who I am is not rooted in what I do, how much money I make, what the numbers on the scale are when I step on it, um, how many people like me on Facebook or something like that. Our identity then is rooted in something far greater. It's rooted in this person who has come to save us. And, and then that, rea that identity then becomes something glorious because we can actually have community. We, we can have hope of bridging the gulf between different parts of the, the world because God himself existed eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He was always in perfect community. He's always had this perfect humility, uh, um, this perfect uh, union between himself, and then he created us, us in his image. Community can be real, it can actually happen. And we have worth. If we are just molecules that happen to blow up one day and wind up in this order, there's no worth, no purpose to this. Who cares if that bag of chemicals fuzzes and bubbles and does something and this one doesn't? It doesn't matter. We're all just bags, skin bags of chemicals and, and one day we'll be gone. But instead, we're created in the image of God. We are filled and sealed with the Holy Spirit. We have purpose. We have identity. There is worth. So when we pass the person who's struggling, when we see somebody who is really in difficulty, you can look at them and go, ah, try harder next time. Instead, you look at them and go, here's an image of God. Here's an image bearer of God. How can I help? You have intrinsic worth, intrinsic value, even in the womb. So there's so many things that come out of putting Jesus first. Earthly wisdom will not carry you that far. It won't do it. But the wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit, the spiritual truths that we believe, that we hold on to, they will fit like a key into a lock and make reality feel better. It'll make it seem more real. It'll help us to understand the difficult parts of reality when we're struggling, when we're suffering, where we're at a loss, as well as help us to not get too comfortable in the times when everything's great. Because it is sometimes, it's great. Life is really nice. It's not horrible every single moment. But if you take Jesus out of the equation, if you take God out of that equation, all you're hoping for is those good, comfortable moments. And when the bad times come, you're ruined. There's just no point in it. Why am I even, pro why am I even going on? So this is the truth. This is the, the spiritual wisdom that, that Paul wants us to have. And what he says in the end is, we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. The Spirit imparts to us spiritual wisdom so that we can have the mind of Christ. So listen to what else he says about the mind of Christ. This is from Philippians chapter 2. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Have this mind among yourself. If we have this mind among ourselves, can we have unity within this church? Can we have unity with other like-minded churches? Unity becomes a reality because it's not rooted in us and what we feel and what we want and, and I'm, a, I'm afraid that I'm going to lose if I like you too much or something. It's rooted in, in who Jesus is. He, he gave up everything, far more than we were ever asked to give up, and he gained so much more. And that's the promise that we have. So this is where Paul wants us to go with our unity, is, is don't rely on words of human wisdom. They will only carry you so far, and then they will leave you flat. They will not answer all of what reality is. Instead, rely on spiritual wisdom. 
which is available to all of us because all of us in the church, all of us in the, in the covenant with God, all of us in the new covenant have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's available to each and every one of us. Now, there's still some differences, and we'll talk about some of those, about different gifts and that stuff. That's coming up later in, in Corinthians, but the reality is that's a source for us to look at each other and have unity and agreement is because we've all had, have the Holy Spirit. We've all been given that beautiful wisdom that comes from God. We have the mind of Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would continue to remind us of the great, beautiful, powerful spiritual truths that you have revealed. Lord, you've given us different ways to apprehend them, different ways to engage them. You have inspired a complete scripture for us. All of the Bible are the very words of God. You brought them through human authors to us today. And so, Lord, I pray that we would all pay attention to the words of God in our Bible, that we would study these things and, and hear your voice in them. Lord, Holy Spirit, I think of Romans chapter 8, which says that we don't even know how to pray. But you pray for us in groanings too deep for words. You pray for us in ways that we're not even sure how we should. And so, Lord, I pray that we would avail ourselves of, of that blessing, too, that, that you are praying with, for us and with us, that we would engage in prayer, that we would seek those kinds of things. And, Lord, it's such a blessing to be part of a church, to see what you're doing uniquely in different people at different times in different ways, to recognize that, Lord, you are so much bigger than just our exp experience with you. you. You're working in other people, and to look around the church and see how you're working in somebody else's life is a glorious blessing. And then to look at other churches and see what you're doing there when you're accomplishing great and wonderful things. Lord, and even in our suffering, um, you come to us in our suffering, in our, in our loss, in our sense of not having enough. And Lord, you can use that to impart spiritual wisdom to us, to, to produce in us wonderful and glorious things as we trust even when we can't see, because that's what hope is. So, Lord, would you do all of those things in us? And I pray for other churches in the Antelope Valley who, who are trusting in you, who are looking to Jesus Christ, who believe that the word is, is your word, who know that they need Jesus for salvation. Lord, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you'd be working in those churches as well. And, Lord, would you bring us to the unity in mind? We don't have to be organized in one church body under one type of leadership or any of that, but, Lord, there is a spiritual unity, and I pray that we are all eager to maintain that. Thank you for bringing that spiritual unity to us, Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name these things. Amen.